So, what would you little maniacs like to do first? Welcome to the Circuits of Time. It's season two. So find the nearest bra, place it on your head, and let's party on, dude. everyone it is season two episode five of the circuits of time welcome everyone i am your host jd and i'm here with my as always good friend i can say it once i can say it a million times my great friend in fact jaff dog j dog what are you this week i am the king of all dogs the king dog we'll have that one what have you been up to jaff dog oh a little bit of this a little bit of that jd Few films here and there, few few cinema trips. Um, really? Little, yeah, a little bit of uh, nostalgia on the old uh, Disney Plus and whatnot. Loving that new um, new subscription that I've signed up to. I must say I've um, I've fallen out of love with Netflix a little bit. I find it really difficult to find anything on there. That's just my opinion. What about these cinema trips? Then what have you been to see? Oh, we've been to see a couple of films. Uh, Couple of British films, you know, the old kitchen sink dramas. <laughs> I do indeed. I went to see the Batman this week. You know the type of films, don't you, JD? The ones where uh, every British actor, including Jim Bob, brought Benters in there somewhere. But there's some yeah, kind if, of if, social uh, social realism going on. If Jim brought Bent in it, it's not a British movie. You can count on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I went to see the Batman uh, uh, this week. I don't know if you've uh, thought about going to see that one yourself. Uh, it's one that I've thought, but I'm yet to convince anyone to uh, to come and see it with me. Not even the wife. No, no, no. She, I mean, she is a cat woman, but uh, not in, not in that uh, in that context. Yeah, let's. These jokes are on the wane. We'll continue. <laughs> uh, it was actually, you know, it was a three-hour film, and it's a long stretch for any film. Um, it's got to hold your attention. It's good, but I've got to say, very entertaining, very dark. I mean, very dark film for ninety minutes is quite tough to swallow. Dark film for three hours, it, it really is going going for it. However, it was well made, uh, really good story. I, I'd recommend it. Um, but we will move on, and without further ado, uh, let's open up the eighties treasure chest with a film that you may recognise from the following sound. And of course, if you didn't get it from that, J-Dog, what is the film we will be discussing on this episode? Good enough for you, it's good enough for me, the Goonies, good enough for you, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's nice to have Cindy on the episode. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> well, uh, that's, that's no problem, JD. She actually didn't like that song, you know. I know while we while we're on that subject, she didn't. I don't know where I read that, but I was uh, informed that she just didn't like that song. Oh. Uh, I don't know how she feels about it now, twenty twenty two, because I think it's you know maybe the song we think of it differently because of the film, but I mean I think it's quite catchy. I don't know about you, I love it. But anyway, tell us more about the Goonies. 
A few factoids about the movie. The Goonies is a 1985 film. It's an, an adventure comedy uh, produced and directed by Richard Donner of Superman fame. The screenplay was by Chris Columbus, of course, who went on to make Home Alone. And it was based on a story by executive producer and in some scenes, definitely director Steven Spielberg. Uh, it was made on a budget of $19 million, went on to gross box office of $125 million. It stars uh, uh, Samwise Gamgee himself, Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, of course, who's uh, had a, a career resurgence in the past de decade or so. Uh, the great Corey Feldman, uh, and amongst others. And it's just a fantastic, fantastic, dare I say, family film. I'm sure we'll get into the, the nitty gritty of that, but it's a great film. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, an 80s family film, and, and that's a genre all in itself, because it certainly uh, has ingredients that you might not find in, in, in today's movie world. Definitely. But I mean, a, a, a really good return at the box office, wasn't it? For what was an original story, I mean, it would hard, be, it'd be hard pressed to sell something like that. But I think this is the Spielberg and Donna influence. I mean, this was at the, the peak of their powers, wasn't it? Pure magic, isn't it? The the way they weave the supernatural into every day, the, uh, the the focus on youth and childhood, and the just the the possibilities within the film and the and the innocence there, and it, it, you just don't get anything like it. It's in the it's in very much the same mold as as your Gremlins and your Bigs and your uh, the Babs and and it's just a, it's just a magical time for cinema in the eighties. But but where's that gone? Why is it that these guys who are you know Spielberg's still around? A lot of these producers and writers are still around. What has changed? Because listen, I agree. I was watching this film this week, uh, and I think I even messaged you and said, you know, I've had a smile from ear to ear for the whole you know one hour, 45, 50 minutes, however long it's on for. I was just filled with glee. Um, it just does. It's just such a good. It's a family film in one sense. It's it's an adventure film. It's a comedy. It's magical. I don't know why we don't see that now. It, it, it's hard to put your finger on, isn't it? I don't know. Was there a, a loss of innocence maybe at some point once the 80s had gone? Was there a, a sense of, of change in society? Had, we, had, had, had society lost that, um, that edge of that, uh, the, the suspension of disbelief almost? You know, we see it in music. Um, you know, you go from like the hair metal days of the 80s and uh, all sorts of wild different genres to uh, grunge music. Everything's depressing and down in the 90s. Things are a bit more bleak, a bit more, bit more realistic. But then I think, but and I was just thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, oh, maybe like the 80s was colourful because, you know, it was a, a, an, an innocence and naivety. But, but no, actually, because for all of that decade, there was a massive threat of nuclear war, nuclear annihilation between the East and the West. So it's not like it was all sunshine and rainbows in the 80s. It really wasn't. There was a, a massive economic decline. So, but then maybe maybe culture became an escape from whatever was going on back in those days. I, you know, when I was watching it, I like I think the thing that stands out to me is the portrayal of the kids because you can think about kids in films and you might start thinking, you know, kids are whiny, they're annoying. But there's something about 80s kids. They're almost, you know, uh, arsy, the, the mm. kind of bad mouth, potty mouth, a bit of attitude. 
they're, they're likable, aren't they? I mean, you've got a, a core cast here of about, I don't know, I can't think off the top of my head, eight, seven, eight, nine Goonies, whatever it is. And they all are likable, believable characters. Um, so I, maybe that's got something that we, we haven't got these days. I think kids don't seem to have that edginess that they once did. I think there's there's a bit more innocence in the portrayal now. You certainly don't get as many swear words as you do. I mean, this film certainly got a few in it, and it works in the film's favour, doesn't it? Yeah, within about five minutes, the word the, the S word has been announced so many times by the characters whilst they're talking amongst themselves. And I think maybe as a child, when you watch these characters like that and you see them doing that, you feel, oh, wow, you know, they're, they're uh, doing something which is a bit taboo that I can't do. Also, I got the sense of feeling as well, watching it again for this podcast, that think back that when I was that age, I used to watch these films and think, like, these kids seem to get up. They, they'd be like, they're like grown-ups. They, they get away with... They just do whatever they want, you know. They they're left to their own devices a lot more, and you know they seem to have access to like more more like stuff and equipment and whatever and 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 money and, and things. And like my parents knew exactly what I was up to, and I never had any money to do anything when I was a kid. It was rubbish. But these kids are <laughs> like, you know, they're going off everywhere, and you know, very similar to um, oh, uh, Honey, I Shrink the Kids. You know, they they they, they can they, they they're left to their own to their own device. <laughs> But don't forget, I mean, look at the, the the location that this was in. We can touch upon that as we delve into the film. But, I mean, Astoria, Oregon, it, it's almost a character in itself in this film. Um, it's such a great place to to have this movie, this location. It just works. It was almost, you couldn't have picked a better location, could you? And um, you obviously have those great scenes of the kids on the bikes. It, it just feels like an adventure from the moment you start watching it. And, you know, for a film that I think I've seen maybe... 20 times over the course of my life I'd probably gone and, and we say this regularly on the podcast because obviously as you get older you have less time to watch these things but I'd probably gone potentially 15-20 years without seeing it uh, really I really do believe that however what surprised me was number one just how much it holds up number two just how much I still adore this movie it hasn't lost anything in fact I think when you watch these films with adult eyes they gain a lot more um, but we, we can save that, I suppose, for our uh, final um, re- review on, on The Goonies. Um, but why don't we talk about um, what the movie is all about? And I'll leave that in your capable hands, J-Dog. So Mikey Walsh and Brandon Walsh, played by Josh Brolin and uh, Samwise Gamgee himself, uh, Sean Astin, are brothers whose family is preparing to move because they're their housing area is under threat from developers who want to build a golf course in place of the neighbourhood, unless enough money is raised to stop the construction. And that's quite doubtful, given what the circumstances the different families are in. But when Mikey stumbles upon a treasure map of the famed One-Eyed Willie's Hidden Fortune, Mikey, Brandon, and their, as we've already mentioned, quite individual friends, uh, set off on an, an adventure or a quest to find the treasure in hopes of their saving saving their new neighbourhood. And collectively, this gang called the Goonies uh, get up to all sorts of hijinks when they enjoy a range of exciting escapades whilst underground. Escapades. I like that one. I like that word. Um, I mean, so simple... This film, if you could sum it up in, in uh, from a story point of view, in the most simplest form, kids find a map and follow it. I mean, 
that in a nutshell is the film. Um, but everything thrown in around that makes it so spectacular. Um, and we say it about most films that the, the look of big, the kid shrinks and spends in it, you know, goes big and spends an entire movie chasing a machine to go small. And yes, other things are layered above and beyond that. But I would love to have heard the pitch for this movie. Um, there's a kids in the town uh, and the, the kind of down and out looking for things to do with the board. They find the treasure map and follow it. In a way, I mean, I'm not saying this is tailored to boys, but I mean, I think growing up, I don't remember many girls, but kids love the idea of like the treasure hunt and the map, didn't they? I don't know if you ever had that. So immediately it was appealing just on a, on a premise basis, wasn't it? Yeah, you get a lot of this in 80s films. They call them high, high concept films. The types that the type of films that could be pitched in one sentence, like twins, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito are twins. This is a, a, one of those one-line movies group of kids go on a treasure hunt big as you said you know uh an adult becomes a, a boy and so on and so forth so yeah i mean the, the possibilities are endless with something like this and just the, the the sheer joy of um of the movie makers they must they, they must have had whilst they were making it as well it just it, it, it the, the mad the magic that's captured on screen it it's uh and you also mentioned about you happen you might not have seen it for a long long time same but, you know, it's almost like nothing had happened in that time. Although I do want to come on to something when we start digesting the uh, or, or dissecting the, the scene by scene, because there are some things in this film which I don't remember whatsoever. And I'm sure we'll get on to that. be interesting to see if you've seen the uh, addition. The, I don't know if there's like a few deleted scenes have been added on, but we can get on to that. But let's, let's kick off with our movie review. Hey, Dirtbags, it's time for the movie review. We start off, J-Dog, with uh, the escape from prison of one of our three antagonists, Jake Fratelli, um, aided by his brother, Francis, and, of course, uh, Ma Fratelli, uh, their mother, played brilliantly by Anne Ramsey. And this is a great opening. I mean, I don't know how unusual it is to start a film with the antagonists, but this film throws you right into the deep end uh, and, and the sense of adventure is thrown at you. You have, and um, we, we will probably reference the soundtrack, I think, quite a lot over the course of this review because it plays such an important part in this movie. Uh, and, and it's no difference with this opening scene, the idea of the tension and, and the chase. Um, and we also see straight away the friction between the two brothers. I think one of them can't open the car handle to get into the car. Uh, and then obviously we have the bullets. And then it ultimately leads to the police chase. And this is a truly brilliant scene. Uh, one, because it's well filmed. It has a brilliant score. But two, it actually introduces us to most of the main cast as the police cars passing them by. Yeah, it's a great it's a great introduction. That. It's a great uh, uh, cinematic device that we're following. We're, we, we learn so much just in this very uh, quick scene that we're seeing. Um, okay, so, so what are we finding out when we... When we first see this scene, we're, we're on on the face of it, we can see a car chase. But underneath it, the director's telling us this is going to be a high-octane adventure film. There's going to be a lot happening, and it is going to be happening from the outset. Also, at the same time, yeah, much like a, an opening credit scene where you might see the different characters, that's exactly what you're seeing. You are, you are being introduced to different characters, and it's a great way of doing it because what the, what the device of a car chase can do 
is the action shifts from one place to another. So you don't have a bunch of uh, random scenes introducing the characters, or you don't have them all coming together. Um, I mean, you do later when they come to um, the uh, the brother's house, and you get learn a little bit about their characters there. But you get to sort of glimpse them in their um, natural habitat, as it were. So we see Chunk in the... Uh, is he in a restaurant or somewhere playing computer games with food? So I believe so. So that's, you know, um, you just, you get that little glimpse of all the characters, the girls, you see them in the um, in the, in the football football field doing cheerleading or something like that. So you, you're learning stuff about these characters before um, in, a, in a casual way uh, without it being rammed down your neck. And that's really, really important in a film like this where you've got such an ensemble of characters that you need to have a, if you're gonna if you're gonna invest yourself emotionally into the characters, you're going to need to um, know a little bit about them and, and and their unique identity so that they don't meld into one. But also, like I say, in a way that's not like um, okay, now we're gonna go to a school. This is the 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 girl. Now we're gonna go to a restaurant. This is Chunk. You see it quickly in passing, and I think it's such a such a clever way. Also, as well, there's a there's a, a cut. Um, from the chase to um are they watching a car chase movie so again that's the the showing isn't it that the people who made the film are quite literate in terms of cinema oh very much so i mean it's a genius introduction in many ways um but we also then are introduced to uh, the town and i know I, i said this a bit earlier but i think it's worth just making a note of it because you we immediately see these houses uh astoria in oregon it, it, for me, it plays such an important role in the story. I don't know if you felt the location added a lot to this film as well. I think it, a story is a, a film, uh, a, a location, which um, is, and I'm sure if, if people live there, they'll think, well, it's just another place like we probably do about, you know, our hometown. But um, Astoria is in a beautiful part of the States in the uh, Pacific Northwest, I think, in, in Oregon. Uh, where it's often quite damp, quite drizzly, um, you know, the beautiful green spaces up there and, um, you know, just lovely environments. I remember, remember uh, you know, um, seeing it in other, other locations, places like Oregon and uh, Washington State, you know, uh, lovely part of, of, the, of the United States. But I've only ever seen it in one other film or certainly referenced as heavily in another film. Can you think of what other film I'm I'm thinking of? I can't. Enlighten me. Kindergarten Cop. And in fact, this, there is a building. Um, I think it's the school. Is the same school from Kindergarten Cop. Um, but that's another film with that location. And, and I think cinema-wise, it's a, it's it possibly could be seen as a location that's tucked away a little bit somewhere where... It might be pretty, but underneath the surface, dig under, dig underneath a little bit, and and you know there's more going on. Um, like in Kindergarten Cop, there's this place where the, you know, the drug dealer's family are hiding or something like that. And then uh, in this, of course, underneath the surface, literally underneath the surface of the ground, there's a, an adventure awaiting, isn't there, towards treasure. So yeah, it is. A, it, it is as you said. It's a it's a character in itself. Yeah, no, I know what you mean, though, though that northwestern part of the states. Seattle, I think, uh, those ways, isn't it? Washington. And again, I mean, you know, you look even at Sleepless in Seattle, and I always remember watching that film, being, not, I wouldn't say I was totally in love, but just 
admiring the actual place where the location was. It just looked nice. But I mean, we are talking from the other side of the Atlantic. Most of the states looks great to us, doesn't it, J-Dog? Um, <laughs> it does, yeah, yeah. We're soon introduced to, our, I suppose you could call it our main protagonist. Uh, you might want to challenge me on that, but uh, in the form of Mikey, who's the younger brother of uh, Brandon, who you mentioned earlier. And, and he says something very interesting. I don't know if you recall hearing this quote, but he says, nothing exciting ever happens around here anyway. I can't wait to get out of here. And it's a great setup line for what's to come. Uh, and this is why we talk about the, the genius of not just how the film's made and the story, but just the script as well. Everything adds something, you know, that that's going to set up the film perfectly. Yeah, and I think um, it, it speaks, doesn't it, to a young lad's idea of life when he's growing up. Things are quite boring. Things are quite normal. What seems normal and nothing, you know, nothing special or nothing important happens. Happens where you're from, kind of thing. Until one day it does. So it's it's a very boring life until you know until a treasure map comes <laughs> comes your way. Uh, not long after that, we have the gang show up, and this is a great scene in, in the sense that everyone gets their own little mini introduction. Uh, mouth turns up through the front door, um, just in, I, mean, I suppose you could call that a normal entrance. Chunk does the infamous or the famous <laughs> truffle shuffle. Uh, Data comes in with a James Bond theme. Uh, he comes in on like a bit of a zip wire, doesn't he? Uh, what did you think of those introductions to the characters? Oh, they're, they're like comic book characters, aren't they? They're being introduced one by one. And again, it all adds to the sort of flavour of their personalities. We're learning a little bit more about them. And also about the uh, when they do open the, the gate for Chunk, it involves one of those, I've mentioned them before, um, you know, where the thing does the thing like, you know, the game Mousetrap, uh, Rube Goldberg devices, they're called, where one thing does the other. So that tells us a little bit about the boys as well. They're quite, um, you know, they're quite creative in terms of, has it got like a bowling ball down, a, a gutter or some, something like that? Yeah, I think we see a balloon uh, blowing up and an egg getting <laughs> cracked or something along those lines. <laughs> I mean, but we really can't move on without at least referencing the truffle shuffle. I mean... Even watching that, you know, 20 years after, it still makes you laugh. And, you know, I suppose it's as good as time as any to quickly uh, mention Chunk. Or, or his name is actually Lawrence, isn't it? And we don't usually just do a quick character focus, but I think it would be worthwhile because this is such a famous scene. But watching it back 20 years later, he really does steal the movie hmm. in almost every way. He's funny. He's believable. He's got the best lines. And, and of course, he didn't really go on to have a, a long movie career, did he? I think he's in the industry in some capacity, or I think I read that he's into some sort of law firm or pr production. I'm not quite sure, but what a performance by the by the lad! Yeah, you're right. He's he's you know what before YouTube and the internet, as it were, and you'd have these discussions as we'd speak about films like this, and you do wonder, or you did wonder, what on earth had happened to these people, and especially when they've had such a great iconic performance like this, and you know, usually they end up doing the, the sort of uh, uh, comic convention circuit, don't they? And I don't know whether Chunk or the fella who plays him has done that, but uh, yeah, he he didn't um, he didn't go on to do much else. But definitely, this is a this is a, a showstopper of a performance. And and also, you know, later on in the film, and if it weren't for Chunk, then uh, you know, the, I don't think the children would have been rescued because it's be it's. And we'll talk about it later. It's because of Chunk's actions and the person he meets 
that they get saved later on. No, you're quite right. And just for obviously his, I feel like we do a, do him a disservice without saying his name. It's Jeff Cohen, oh. the guy that plays Chunk. But it really was a show stealer performance. But we also uh, as we find out that Mikey's dad is a curator for the local Astoria Museum, and he has a load of old junk and artifacts in the attic. And Mouth, uh, played by Corey Feldman, has the bright idea that maybe there's things up there worth keeping. Um, now Mikey seems kind of against that, doesn't he? I don't think he wants to kind of get involved with all the hoo-ha. Everyone else is excited and they go up. I mean, it must be so exciting to think that, you know, someone's dad's a curator and has all these old artifacts from a museum. I mean, it sounds quite exciting and maybe it's because we're middle-aged men, but I mean, it, it looked, when they got up there, the stuff up that was the kind of artifacts lying around, you could have spent hours and days in there, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly remember the one, the one place in the house when you were young that was pretty much off limits um, was the was the attic, wasn't it? The loft, uh, you know, you wouldn't have any call for going up there unless it was supervised. And also, you, you know, you, there, there was, the generally speaking, there's all kinds of uh, knickknacks and, and, and accoutrement up there, <laughs> which, yeah, um, I mean, which you just don't know anything about because you're young and you don't fully understand as well. So there's a, there's a world of possibilities up there. Your parents, when you're younger, are your parents, and that's all they are. They're, they're, not, they're nothing else, are they? They exist to, to serve you, as it were. It's only when you get older, you realise that your parents actually had a life before, you know, you were there. So I so said they did have um, a collection of, of things, you know, much like much like we do of our lives as well. Uh, so it's it's that interest of what what, what is up there, the possibilities. But... Um, but the the, uh, the lad, he you mentioned he, he's a bit um, hesitant to go up there. At the same time, I also noticed in these early scenes, he's quite he's in denial about what's happening. Uh, Chunk mentioned something about the the, the development, and um, he jumps in straight away and says, "Oh, well, that's not going to happen." Okay, so he's in this, this state of denial, perhaps because he obviously doesn't want to lose his home. No, you're well spotted. Um, I think I can speak for the average Brit when I say that most people's attics or lofts, as we call them, uh, in Britain, it's not as exciting as what we see in the movies. It's hmm. typically just uh, the old Christmas decorations for us, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. There's just one time I found a treasure map. <laughs> <laughs> Where did it lead you to? Uh, didn't lead me anywhere, to be fair. Ah, well, it's an in- interesting part in the film because Mikey says the uh, items were rejects, um, doesn't he? And Chunk intervenes and says, kind of like us, Mike, the Goonies. Um, and I don't know if this is something that Americans are familiar with, you know, the term Goonies. It's not something here on this side of the Atlantic that we, it's a word we use. I mean, even now, having watched the film so many years later, are you still, um, do you still have an idea of what the Goonies actually means? It's only because through research, that's the only reason why I know, um, and, and I'll let you explain it. But no, at the time when I was young, I didn't. I just accepted it at face value. I didn't. I didn't understand. It was just the name of a gang. We thought yeah. goon. I mean goons. You know goon. Like they were like the goons, like the losers kind of thing. That's yeah. that's about that's what I understood at the time. But obviously now I know no differently. Uh, it, it's well filmed, isn't it? We have this, uh, they find the map and we also see, we know it's an important item when they pick it up. 
because the music changes and the storm outside intensifies. So again, we can go back to, you know, the, the filmmakers really playing the part in this. And uh, luckily for the Goonies, Mouth just so happens to be fluent in Spanish. Uh, obviously, he has that amusing scene with Rosalita when he's not entirely translating accurately what Mikey's mom's saying. But um, he, he reads the Spanish on the map. I don't know if you can recall what the actual translation was, J-Dog. No. Ye intruders beware, crushing death and grief, soaked with blood of the trespassing thief. Very I mean, good. I still don't Very know well delivered. I still, I still don't know what it means, even reading that. <laughs> but it kind of alludes to the fact, you know, I think if you if you delve into that, that, you know, anyone looking to find the treasure on this map is in for a rude awakening. It's, it's going to be a perilous journey. I think we can surmise it in that. And this is the point where Brand mentions a pirate, One-Eyed Willie. Um, I don't know if One-Eyed Willie is a real pirate in law or whether it was just something fabricated for this film. Chris, have you ever heard of a One-Eyed Willie? Uh, not in the context. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never met one. But Oh, right, okay. But in the wider context? I've shaken on. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Mikey then uses the opportunity, and, and I think this is more for the audience's benefit. He gives us a little bit of a background about One-Eyed Willie. Um, he goes on to say that he was a, an infamous pirate that had stolen rubies, emeralds, and diamonds. Now, the British king with his armada tracked One-Eyed Willie down after weeks of chasing and was uh, eventually ensued. A war ensued. Uh, Willie managed to flee into the nearby caves, but the British blew up the walls all around him leaving the pirate and his horde trapped forever, along with a bunch of his crewmen, who, to wade off any enemies, dug a host of tunnels filled with booby traps. And I think they say one of the guys must have got out otherwise. How did the map suddenly get out? Um, but these are, I mean, I think they said they were down there for a couple of years, but they must have been very skilled pirates to have done those tunnels and booby traps. Very impressive. Yeah, very, very impressive. Uh, even... Even though later on they do look a little bit uh, like styrofoam uh, rocks. <laughs> <laughs> we also see Chung um, find another item. It's a picture frame, isn't it? Uh, with I think I don't know if it's like a newspaper cutting within the frame. Yeah, and it refers to a Chester copper pot, not to be mistaken with Oswald Cobblepot from Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you. I knew you wouldn't let me get away with that. I think he's referred to as a, a reclusive scavenger who was uh, reported missing whilst in pursuit of this local legend. And then we read further down, there's a quote from um, Chester Copperpot. I have the key to One-Eyed Willie. And this really intrigues the Goonies, doesn't it? This is the point where they think, number one, it's an adventure, but you know, there's an opportunity here for us to maybe save this town uh, and thus leads uh, from this point on a moment for or the adventure begins, so to speak. Um, and it, it's a chance to stay in the, the, I think they call it the goon docks, uh, which I did after Google because I wasn't entirely sure what that was. But apparently it's the poorer part of Astoria. And all I will say is if where they live is the poorer <laughs> part of Astoria, then good grief, the rest of the place must be pretty fantastic. Oh my God. I mean, what is it with American films? I mean, I know the houses are made, seem to be made out of matchboxes, but... Goodness me, uh, 
they live in these huge houses. You know, they, they've got this massive porch with a huge garden, massive space overlooking uh, the, the sea. This is this is perfection. If this is like you say, if this is the poor area, I'd love to see the rich area. Oh, you're not kidding. Um, Mikey picks up an object. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. It's maybe a coin or some sort of uh, relic. And he flips it up and he says the word 1632. I mean, what is that? And why did he say it? Presuming it's not explained in the film. Is that a reference to that it will be Spanish gold? The 1600s? That would make sense. Couldn't. I'm not sure. Maybe our history is not, not that good, but it was just something I noticed. Like I never understood what that was and why he picked it up because we obviously we come to find out that you know he can see the rocks within the the um, holes within this artifact. But I'm, I'm not sure Mikey knew that at the time. Um, but anyway, um, we soon have Mr. Perkins, a, a gentleman wearing that uh, coat you only ever see in the 80s in America, the Inspector Gadget, Clark Griswold. <laughs> yeah. um, but he, he shows up and he refers to himself as Troy's father. Now, it's an interesting thing because obviously we don't know Troy at this point, but he's looking to speak with uh, Brandon Mikey's parents. Uh, he's looking for papers to be signed, um, which we learn is an agreement to vacate the property, uh, which will ultimately uh, eventually be turned into a golf club. And again, we get a bit more of an understanding as to why these people are having to move out of the of this part of America. So they've got motive. Not number one, it's an adventure, but they've got motive to want to stay. So it's a nice story building. Now, Brandon, the older brother, is kind of against this, doesn't he? Kind of tries to say, you know, cut it out, guys, you know, stop messing around. And in response to that, Mikey, Chunk, Data and Mouth uh, end up tying Brand to his chair using the exercise equipment and end up fleeing. Uh, and this is the chance to spread the wings, uh, get on those um, bicycles, and, and and get following on this map. The the older brother, Brandon, is it Brandon? Yeah, I think they refer to him as Brandon. Brandon, Brand, yeah, he's um he's he's like a typical jock type character, isn't he? We always see him uh, exercising or lift like with some sort of like contraption, like a spring weight or something like that. I think don't they use that to tie him up? The actual device that he's using to um, they do do like I don't know like chest chest extensions or something like that, but like he Brandon is very much like the jock older older brother. He's a bit of like of a know it all kind of thing. He's like the the more sarcastic one. He's like trying to be like more like the realistic one, like yeah right type character. They also he's uh, a bit like sorry, he's so a bit like, like David in the Lost. I was going to say he's a bit like David in the Lost Boys because. He's kind of arsy with his brother, but you can sense that there's a love in this there. I think there's one scene when Mikey's on the front porch and he, he kind of puts his arm around him. Yeah. Uh, so they've got that dynamic, which is quite nice to see. Yeah, that's just after the the, the uh, Troy's dad's turned up. Um, speaking of Troy, we actually finally meet him. He's uh, riding in a car with uh, two other characters who we will learn to will be also become Goonies, Andy and Steph. And Troy is our uh, is our movie dou douchebag, isn't he? <laughs> um, but the map leads the gang to a local restaurant, which, unbeknownst to them, just so happens to be the home and hangout of the Fratellis. And, of course, it's a great scene because Chunk opens this hatch door, doesn't he? And he sees this ORV uh, bullet holes. Now, I'm not, I don't know whether he recognises this from the actual chase uh, or whether he just sees the car and is freaked out. Um but we know at this point that there's danger afoot. 
Yeah, now th- here's the thing, JD. So maybe you can help me out here. When um when we see the fratelli fratellis for the first time in that scene or or at that restaurant or bar or whatever it is, from what I can recall, and yeah, okay, as we said, it's been a long time since I saw it. From what I could recall, that was the first scene that we'd seen the fratellis, but it couldn't be because obviously the opening credits was a chase involving those. But what I definitely, definitely, uh, hand on heart, do not remember from any version of the film I've, I've seen. And bear in mind, I've probably seen it on television more than anything. The very opening scene when we see the Fratelli brother hanging in the cell, I, I did not remember seeing that ever. And then burning the... Uh, the police station down. I didn't remember it at all. So perhaps it's just my brain playing tricks on me. But for me, I thought the first scene of the Fratellis was in this restaurant place. No, it's definitely the prison scene. Um, so it's probably your brain playing tricks or just, you know, 20 years going by. But uh, no, my memory's pretty good. And I still remember the hanging scene. And I can definitely remember the fire scene. And, and I'll tell you why. Because I can always remember. Um, I can't remember the name of the other. What's the other brother? Not Jake. Yeah, Joe uh, Pantaleano. Yeah, who does he play again? He plays Francis. He plays Francis Fratelli. I can always remember the scene where he's winding the window up and you can see the fire in the reflection. Very, very familiar to me that. But no, it is the second time we're introduced. But they're also the shifting something, aren't they, in a bin bag? And you can see that the Goonies are trying to surmise as to what they're you know they, i think they say it could be trash but we know it's obviously a body we know these are, are not good characters um and of course this is the point in the movie when the protagonists meet the antagonists yeah well chunk um, chunk firstly sees the the as you said the bullet holes and he's going isn't he shouting going bullet holes bullet holes <laughs> <laughs> now did chunk recognize that from the police chase i think so yeah. is he he was probably closest to the action because he was watching through the window um, when they go in, there's, there's a great interaction, isn't there, with the, the, the boys and Marfa Telly. Uh, she plays such a good part in this movie, doesn't she? Uh, and, and you have Mouth, who's kind of, uh, you know, a bit arrogant. He's asking for, like, alcohol and whatnot. Um, eventually, Mikey needs to use the bathroom or more likely wants to uh, snoop around. Uh, and we hear Marfa Telly shout, stay to the right. And, well, for good reason, because um, we hear a growl. And uh, then we see him uh, chained to a chair, hands bound and being teased, isn't he? By uh, old, well, I say older brother Jake. We don't know it's the brother at this point, do we? Um, and we don't know what it is, but it doesn't stop Mikey from helping him reach his food. Because I think Jake's kind of, he's got a tray, it looks like vegetables, um, tomatoes and lettuce or whatnot. And he places it maybe a couple of feet away from this it. Um, and we see Mikey get the brush pole. And we always see this, don't we, where we see a character show that even in spite of this gruesome thing, whatever it is, the protagonist still kind of wants to help out. Uh, what does it say about Mikey in number one? What did you think of this scene? Uh, it's it's scary first because the way it's lit is through the, cleverly through the floorboards and the, uh, um, the, the, the sort of little strands of light coming through a, a, a grate on the side of the wall as well. And uh, we, when we see Chunk uh, Sloth, we see him f- from behind, and so we don't get an idea of what he looks like. So it's quite, it's quite terrifying. 
at the same time as well, um, when we when we see him, when we see him, we we, we see him in um, from behind. So uh, you know, it's quite um, mysterious as to what this this thing actually is. And when when Mikey pushes the vegetables over at him, it tells us that he is a he's a good guy, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, we said about the importance of making things scary, even in a family film. And I actually think the same applies with books. A good story, a good children's story, you'll tend to find it can be quite scary. There's an element of fear. Um, it just works, doesn't it? If executed well. Brand eventually catches up with the with the younger brother and his, his fellow friends. I think he'd had an earlier run-in with Troy. But he does come to the rescue in this scene. Um, and the Fratellis head out, uh, leaving the gang to head back into the restaurant. Uh, it's, it's a funny scene, isn't it? Because I think the Fratellis are blocked up and they don't know how to get back in. And I think Mouth, I, I can't remember exactly what he says to Chunk, but he's something like, maybe we should like cover something in chocolate and maybe Chunk can eat his way through or something like that. <laughs> um, but it, it's a great, it's a great uh, scene. Um, and Chunk just makes me laugh because I think he smells ice cream, doesn't he? I don't know if you'd recall this. Um, yeah. This is the point where... <laughs> It's an important scene because we also see for the first point in the movie that there's a body uh, and Chunk gets locked in. Um, really funny. I mean, I, I was just laughing out loud to me because the faces that Jeff Cohen pulls, even when he's kind of not screaming and he just kind of opens his mouth, you, you can't help but just be amused. Um, I don't know where the Fratellis have gone, but they do come back quite quick, don't they? And they quickly suspect that an intruder's come in because they see that the water cooler's broken. Um, and we hear Marfa Telly say, go and check on your brother. Uh, and this is the first point where we realise that that thing chained is actually one of the Fratellis. Yeah. And they also discover as well that they're up, up to no good with printing money as well. $50 bill. <laughs> <laughs> so quotable, isn't it? Um Chunk does get eventually does get out of the uh, closet and the, he's told by Brad to go and fetch the police. And this goes back to what you were saying before. Uh, comes the point in the story when Chunk's actions actually eventually will lead to the uh, rescue and, and ultimately winning the day. Um, so he, he does have a really important point and, and part in this film. Uh, and luckily for Chunk, he manages to hail down a passing car. <laughs> Uh, unluckily for Chunk, it just happens to be Jake Fratelli. Um, isn't that a, that's isn't that a great shot though? Can you can you remember the shot I'm thinking of? Well, there's a couple, uh, and I noticed it myself. Uh, number one, when the light goes on and you see him in the wing mirror, and and he starts singing the the opera. <laughs> but secondly, when the camera goes inside the car, and we see in the background um, Francis Fratelli trying to put Chunk. In the boot, oh, yeah. I mean, I I was laughing my head off because Chunk's face again just sells this scene. Yeah, and then eventually they do get him in, and there's a dead body in there, and you see it, an extreme close up of him, of him again screaming in terror. But like you say, his face is just so uh, photogenic, isn't it, for the for the camera? So, uh, and following that, sticking with the, with the Chunk, uh, it leads to the interrogation scene with the blender. And again, quite scary. I mean, you you can picture you being in Chunk's position. Um, these people who have 
more than likely to be murderers have, have got you with a blender and they're threatening to dice your fingers off, aren't they? Um, but it's an opportunity for Jeff Cohen and the writers to really hammer home this character. I mean, it, it's just 60 seconds of just sheer humour. I think even Jake Fratelli says that, you know, I'm starting to like this kid. It's a great scene. Is that when he's starting to, when he's confessing to everything he's ever done wrong? Yeah. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, in the caves, um, the gang go on to find uh, Oswald Cobble, uh, Chester Copperpot's body. <laughs> the penguin. Uh, and the penguin himself. Uh, but what does this mean for the Goonies, the fact that they found this um, explorer dead? Well, I guess, were they expecting to find treasure and now they just found him dead so does that imply that you know he's if he's this explorer who was looking for things you know when he had the experience and the skills and even he's ended up dead then they, they're screwed because they're just a bunch of kids aren't they yeah it's a great device by the movie makers to kind of hammer home that this journey's going to be so daunting and so treacherous that even the high skilled Chester Copperpot couldn't uh Managed to get out alive. Now, do you uh, get so really much, do you get a very much a sense of feeling of uh, second Indiana Jones film here when we start seeing like the dead bodies and the and the skeletons and things like the gruesome? Just do, do, do you know where I'm coming from with that? You can definitely see the Spielberg effect coming yeah. to play in this yeah. film. I was intrigued to hear that you say that he, he had a little dabble with the direction. I also read uh, online that he'd had a bit of a hand with the story. Although the screenplay was not credited to him, was it? No, so he came up with the sto- story idea and he directed some scenes. And as far as I know, uh, right now I'm, co- I'm going back. This is a fact that I read a long time ago now, so I might be mistaken. But there was some kind of strike, which meant that he couldn't technically direct it, but he did. I, 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 I might be thinking of a different film. I might be thinking of Gremlins, actually. Possibly, but he definitely had a hand in filming some scenes. Meanwhile, Chunk um, gets locked in the room after his interrogation. He's locked in the room with the it, because um, obviously we, we don't hear the word sloth, do we, at this point? The disfigured Fratelli brother, who is sat nearby watching a movie from uh, 1926 uh, called The Black Pirate. I hope that's not on your quiz. Um, <laughs> and again, it, it's a great scene because it's a little bit of foreshadowing for the end of the movie. Uh, we see this pirate movie, don't we, on screen? But it's also our first look at Sloth, who in typical 80s monster gruesome fashion, disfigured face, half his face is drooping, his head's like cone head. Um, very horrible, very scary. Oh, God, yeah, he's, he's terrifying, isn't he? And, you know, even like his ears move independently of one another. <laughs> um, the Goonies have a chance don't they to get out of the, uh, the I think we see them not long after the chunk uh, sloth into introduction the Goonies uh, find this wishing well um, and I think it's probably worth stopping here just mentioning this scene because you could probably argue it's the most powerful scene maybe not the most exciting but it's a chance for the actors to really you know show the worth and show what they're fighting for I mean Corey Feldman Maybe you could argue stole the show in the scene. I know Mikey is credited with the the great speech about our time, but Corey Feldman, you know, we've seen him in a lot of eighties movies. Maybe other than Stand by Me, I don't think I've seen him act as well as this uh, when he talks about you know his wishes not coming true and 
you know, it, it's just a great team for the cast. Yeah, yeah. The, aren't they, the bullies also at the top of the, the well teasing them or they something, are, yeah, something yeah, like that? Is that right? But yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. right. It gives them a chance to show their, uh, their acting chops off. And, uh, you know, a like, nice little audition there for, for Samwise Gamgee for the future Lord of the Rings film. It's hard to believe that it's the same guy. I mean, you can still see it looks like him, but I mean, what a what a transformation um, and what a journey. Still treasure hunting to this day. Uh, the, the wonderful Sean <laughs> Austin, isn't he? Um, but what, what did you think of the scene with Mikey and he talked about the parents? I mean, he's the one pushing this. Oh, oh, is it fair to say that without Mikey, they wouldn't have made it this far? Yeah, would you would, would they have Would they have used Troy... As a ch- would they have escaped the well without Mikey's intervention? I suppose I'm asking. No, I think Mikey is, uh, and I've o- I always got that sense without it being stated, obviously, that I always got the feeling that Mikey was the sort of center of this film. He was the, he was the uh, the leader, as it were, because he didn't, um, you know, he, he was he was the solid, he was the stable, dependable one. You know, you've got all the others who've got their own individual traits, but Mikey was definitely, definitely the leader. And he brings a heart to it and a, and a meaning and a, a moral centre to it as well with the things that he says. I uh, know, well said. Uh, did you also notice the piece of music in the back of this scene? Uh, we, we talk about how great the soundtracks are in some of these films, but even in this scene as well, it, it's such a brilliant score for this film. Was it John Williams? I don't think it was, actually. We should. Uh, you can leave that one in the show notes if you want, but I don't think it was. Uh, very impressive soundtrack, either way. Um, now, Chunk, the situation that he is in seems uh, kind of stark, doesn't it? But he actually manages to make a friend in the form of the It, um, who we learn is called Sloth. In fact, they even go on to share a baby Ruth, uh, which is a classic scene, isn't it? And begins a wonderful friendship. Yeah, now, of course, being a youngster in Great Britain, one doesn't know or didn't know what a babe Ruth actually was. It's the first time I went to the United States, of course. One of the very first things I did when I was in the, in the shop was to get myself a babe Ruth just to try it. And, uh, you know, after such the such anticipation and the excitement of feeling that I'm now eating something that I'd heard of in the movies, and then that bitter disappointment of realising that American chocolates is absolutely dire in comparison to ours. Oh, harsh words for our American listeners. I mean, yeah, I think I've only ever had like maybe a Hershey's. I don't think I was a great fan. It's much. Um, it's obviously, our, our, just a little bit of background. Um, our our chocolate um, is was you know goes back to the tradition introduced by by Cadbury in the eighteen hundreds. They added a lot of milk to the to the chocolate, and uh, milk chocolate in this country is. Is much less bitter than what it is in the states, and uh, you know there's some different processes in, involved, um, but but it's it's generally acknowledged that uh, that that British chocolate confectionery sweets chocolate bars are much much better than their American counterparts. Now, of course, if you're in America and that's all you've ever known, then you'll probably say, "Oh no, it's brilliant," but you've got to give it a try because um, you know the, the, it's 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 good stuff, isn't it, JD? Oh, hundred percent. Get the first flight over here and try a crunchy. You don't even need to do that. You know, I think there's certain specialist food store that'll sell you. It's a bit more expensive, but uh, 
if you're if you're listening in the states, then you got to try Cadbury chocolate because if you haven't had that, then you know you are uh, you don't like life's not worth living unless you tried that. Oh, great shout! Uh, Chunk manages to he contacts the local sheriff's department, doesn't he? Um, and it, it's amusing because the sheriff doesn't believe a word Chunk says. Chunk's got this reputation, hasn't he, for being a bit of a, a storyteller, a bit of a bullshitter. Um, we have that scene at the start of the movie when he's talking about Michael Jackson using his, his <laughs> bathroom. And then he, he says his sister, it was actually his sister. Uh, I remember the time he said he ate, he ate his weight in pizza, I think one of them in the other one was. But this does, this does go against Chunk because it means that, of, of course, the sheriff doesn't believe him. Um, and I think, doesn't the sheriff say something like, isn't this like the time you told us about those things that multiplied and water got on them, which is, again, you know, a little nod to Gremlins and how it's set in the same universe. I thought that was a nice touch. Oh, that's a, that is a nice little touch, isn't it? Were they? Now, I know we've done it for the podcast. Uh, this is 1985. Gremlins, 1985? 19, or 1984? Gremlins was 84. Ah, okay. All right. So within, within 12 months of each other, weren't they? Um, not long after that, we see a scene, and I wanted to bring this up because I... Th- thought you know obviously as a kid you don't process things as as well as you do now but I thought it was a really peculiar choice and even now in hindsight I'm still not sure why they went with it but the scene where Andy mistakenly kisses Mikey um yeah why did they include why did they include that (laughs) was this the film's attempt at bringing in a bit of romance coming of age yeah, coming of age, yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know, the, the fantasy maybe of of kissing an older girl. I don't know. Yeah. Is that what it was meant to be? I'm not entirely sure. Was it something that, you know, was it trying to sell to kids that look at this, these gang of kids, and he manages to kiss a girl as well as being like, I don't know what they were going for. Um, the fact that we're having to debate it now means we're still a bit unsure. So who knows? If anyone does know and wants to tweet why they... I'll get a touch and why they, they included that, then please enlighten us. Yeah, um, you know, I think um, I was also reminded there's a similar scene in Honey Angst from the Kids. Yeah, go on, what just remind me? Um, doesn't someone, doesn't the lad, the neighbor, kit uh, not the name, doesn't that the lad kiss Amy? I'm not well, I think he is the love interest, though, isn't he? Oh, right. Oh, it's not the younger lad then. Oh, okay, I'm just I'm getting it mixed up then. Well, the younger lad's about eight. That would have been bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we also uh, now at this point in the film, the Fratellis, uh, they found out from Chunk uh, about the treasure and are soon in hot pursuit. And again, we have this ramp up of the soundtrack. It's, it's so well done. Um, and we also then have the, the, we'll call it the bone organ or the bone piano. Um which is, again, just another opportunity for the film to give us um, a scene of pedal and, and hijinks in danger and increase the tension. What did you think of that scene? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? You know, so many of these films are like computer games, levels, uh, challenges to be overcome. And this is very another one. It's a puzzle, isn't it? They have to play things in a certain way or certain notes. Yeah, it's a great scene. It is, and it's just an opportunity to make sure that all of the Goonies have their part to play in this adventure. You know, I know we can talk about Data and Data has all his inventions, slick shoes. Um, and he can obviously 
you know, play or she had like musical lessons when she was a kid. So it's nice that the film gives all these characters not a bit of a spotlight to kind of show their worth, isn't it? Yeah, and um, Data's inventions are something else because uh, he seems to defy the laws of physics at times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, well, the pincers of hell are kind of like they must have been strong teeth. <laughs> There's also um, the little uh, the little suction cup thing that he uses to drag a, a fully weighted bin towards him. <laughs> Uh, but Andy, of course, finally gets the right notes, doesn't she, on this uh, bone organ, we'll refer to it as, uh, which leads them down uh, water shoots. Uh, I mean, that must have been great fun to film, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I believe the the water the, the water shoots was a fully working slide that they actually made for the film. So you can imagine how oh, exciting yeah. that would have been. Oh, great stuff. I imagine it wasn't the cast that, uh, or the actual... Uh, kids that ended up coming out of the holes and and landing into the river. I'm, I'm assuming they're stunt doubles. More than likely. Eventually, they see one-eyed Willie ship, um, and it's a nice scene. The music's fantastic. It's top-notch yet again. Um, this journey, they've made it to the promised land. Here is this grand ship, and it looks amazing, doesn't it? They board this pirate ship and eventually stumble upon Willie himself, or at least Mikey does. Uh, and it's a nice part of the film. He has a bit of a heart-to-heart, Mikey and One-Eyed Willie. It's almost like Mikey sees himself like in Willie. He's this reject who, you know, looking for salvation. Uh, Mikey actually refers to him as the first Goonie. Uh, did you pick up on that? Ah, uh, yeah, I see where you're coming from with that, actually, JD. That's a nice, nice touch, a nice nod. I didn't really, hadn't, hadn't really noticed that before in all the years of seeing the film. But thinking back now, you are right. There you go. The Goonies, of course, find the treasure, begin to fill the pockets, and uh, they also hatch a plan, don't they, to try and uh, misdirect the Fratellis. Uh, but too bad for them, because the Fratellis have already caught up. They're in the room, and it's no more treasure. Um, all this journey's been for nothing. Uh, the Fratellis have got them at gunpoint. Uh, I think Mar Fratelli, doesn't she? She leads Andy to the plank before knocking, it, knocking her into the body of water. Uh, things are looking really bleak, aren't they? And then we hear that infamous, potentially the most famous line in, in Goonies. I don't know if you want to give us a quick shout out to what we hear. Hey, you very, imp- very impressive. Of course, it, it's the amazing scene uh, of Sloth. Uh, and what an introduction. And this goes back to what we said earlier. Uh, the film, the foreshadowing uh, back in Sloth's uh, cell, I suppose, where he's watching The Black Pirate, the 1926 movie. Uh, and here is Chunk and Sloth. Uh, Sloth wearing, of course, his pirate hat and his uh, Superman t-shirt. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great thing, isn't it? Yeah, nice touch to the fact that it was directed by Richard Donner, who directed the original Superman film with Christopher Reeve. Of course. It, it's a good point as well, because it's the first time we see an interaction between Sloth and his mother. Um, and you can see that, although you can obviously he's been mistreated, there's still a bit of affection from Sloth, isn't there, to his mum, even if she doesn't show it back. Yeah, it's quite touching that actually, considering the fact that he treat he treats them terribly and chained them up. Um, you know, even uh, we see the the two other brothers try to tie Sloth up with the rope, and then they start playing skipping rope with them, almost like a, a throwback to the childhood kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, also there is an affection there between Sloth and and Mama Fratelli. Uh, 
you know, again, instinctive, isn't it? That uh, even even though um, even though people may be mistreated, uh, blood runs thicker than water, so to speak. Oh, nicely put. I think she starts singing around it like a little bit of a nursery rhyme, a lullaby, <laughs> uh, rock, rockabye baby. Um, it's very, it's triggers. very false though, isn't it? Oh, very much so. Because <laughs> there's a camera angle of Marfa Telly uh, that we can obviously see the, the facial re- reaction, but Sloth unfortunately can't. <laughs> she's kind of rolling. She's rolling her eyes, isn't she? That she's singing this <laughs> lullaby to him. But as part of this lullaby, she obviously uh, says the line, "When the bow breaks, the baby will fall," <laughs> and it, it it triggers something in Sloth, doesn't he? Uh, he remembers, and she says, "Oh, I, I, you know, I only dropped you once, or maybe twice." Can we assume that that's why Sloth is the way he is? It, 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 was he mistreated as a young boy? Is that what the film's trying to tell us? Yeah, I think it's implied that she uh, didn't look after him properly, dropped him on his head, and that caused his dif- disfigurement. Um. Yeah, no, it, I think you're right. It is a touching scene. Uh, but Sloth, of course, does it, that reaction. Um, he picks up his, his mum, doesn't he? And he, he throws it into the water. And, it, you know, he's essentially become one of the gang. Yeah. Um, quite, um, just, just before you before you move on, Jay, Dave, I may say so. It's quite um, quite amusing watching it now in hindsight. But I can remember back then watching it. Quite powerful emotions, you know, just the the thoughts of someone. Like, like I always felt that sorry for Sloth. Like really sad, like it, it. No, it really, it really upset me deep down. Just knowing, like the life he had was so rubbish. Considering that he'd actually probably only had five, six minutes screen time max, um, it's amazing what these storytellers can do. You know, with, what with the limited time that they've got to work with. But I agree with you. You care for this disfigured creature, who you know, for for two or three minutes of the film is this horrible monster in chains. Um, I mean, we have this complete 180. So credit to the filmmakers on that, because I agree with you, very touching, a great moment in the film. Um, Now, the Goonies use the candles, or or they call them candles, uh, but unbeknownst to them, it's actually dynamite. Uh, But they use that, don't they, to blow a hole through the cave walls. Um, The Fratellis, now, maybe you can maybe blame a bit of the editing, maybe at one point in the film, because obviously they're in the water. And we think that's the end, but we we do actually see them a minute later back in the pirate ship, filling the pockets. And there's this one tray of gold coins. And if you recall, Mikey says, you know, leave that. That's for Willie. Uh, but this just happens to be the uh, little tray that Martha Telly dips her hands into, or one of the Fratelli brothers. But it sets off another booby trap. Now I'm not quite sure what the booby trap is because it leads to like the shit moving. I don't know if the film's telling us that you know. Does does a does the cannon blow something through the wall? I'm not quite sure what happens with the booby trap. When um when the Goonies blow up the wall with the the dynamite, I think that sets off a bit of a chain reaction because all sorts of boulders start falling from the ceiling as well. Uh, but yet there is that I recall that scene with the um with the is it Mama, Mama Fratelli? She she takes some gold from a, a pan. And and that causes something. I'm I'm struggling to remember it right now, it's off my head. But um, there's a maybe there's a bit of a message there that uh, being a little bit too greedy is, uh, you know, it's gonna we'll come back. And, we'll come back and bite you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like classic kind of um, model model tale. 
back on the beach now. Uh, the Goonies have managed to escape. Uh, so we're soon back on the beach. Uh, the Goonies have escaped through the cave wall uh, and are soon reunited with their parents. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why the parents happened to be there. Uh, did they have the knowledge that they were in this cave? It's just, I suppose, convenient, isn't it, on the part of the film? We can forgive that. Uh, but they turn up, don't they, with the local sheriff. Uh, maybe it's Chunk's tip-off actually did register. Uh, and also we get the news crew. And it's a nice scene, isn't it? Because, you know, we like to see this reunite, reunited moment. And, you know, you can see how much these kids mean to the parents. Uh, it was a nice scene, wasn't it? Yeah, the um, just be, just before we talk about that, just worth mentioning that just as the Goonies escape through the rock, um, Chunk, Chunk's the last one out, and he's crying because he wants Sloth to come with him, and he's saying, "I love you, I love you, Sloth, I love you." <laughs> and Sloth, I think Sloth says something like, "I love you, Sloth loves Chunk" or something like that. Yeah, so moving. But yeah, back on the back on the beach scene, um, the parents arrive all together at the beach. You're absolutely right, but. Um, they've been found by the police who were on who turn up on quad bikes. So obviously they've radioed it ahead to wherever to um, you know, to get the parents down there. So that that's how the parents knew that they were there. They were brought down after the police had discovered them on the beach. Well remembered that that does scene does ring a bell. But and I'm glad you, you mentioned But do you remember Sloth. do you remember because Mikey's got a policeman's jacket on, like a like a puffer? Uh, like a silk type puffer jacket on with the American flag on it. That's how I remember it. I think he's got his hat on as well. Be quite a stylish coat today, wouldn't it? That. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned the sloth scene with Chunk when he's kind of holding this rock or this boulder up. I agree with you. It's another touch of moment in the film. And I think if you watch that for the first time, you'd almost believe that you know that's him trapped, don't you? You think that they're stuck in, uh, but that's not the case. We see that the Fratellis emerge. Um, not quite sure how they escaped. Maybe the, the cave wall has completely collapsed at this point. Uh, but they're soon reprimanded, uh, all except Sloth. Um, the Goonies kind of flock around them, don't they? Uh, and they protect them. Uh, and we have, again, a, a nice scene again with Chunk and Sloth. Uh, and Chunk says that he's going to live with him. <laughs> and, you, you know, uh, yeah, I know. It, it, it's, again, it's, I said, uh, you know, we, we talk about great movie duos. Um, can we put Chunk and Sloth in that category? 100%. Uh, not long after that, we have uh, Troy's father emerge. Uh, just when we think things are all nice and rosy, the kids are safe. We're reminded, of course, that um, the main point of this film is that all these kids are going to be losing their homes. They're going to be moved on. Uh, it's time to sign the papers. Now, we hear Rosalita the nanny, oh, well, she's not a nanny, is she? She, she was going to give Mikey and Brand's mum a hand with the packing while her arm uh, was on the mend. But we but we do hear Rosalita start to get all hyped up. Uh, she's found something, hasn't she? Yeah, like a bag of jewels or, or something like that. I mean, I think even those jewels are enough to pay for the, you know, the whole situation to, to be resolved. Uh, but one thing we didn't mention just in, just very briefly about Rosalita, the, the person the mom's hired to help to move the house, she um, she's speaking with Mouth at the start, and Mouth uh, mum asks Mouth to translate something, and he comes up with all this stuff saying about where the drugs are kept, and <laughs> and there's all cockroaches and things like that. <laughs> so she's petrified about what's going on. He completely uh, mistranslates things, but yeah, I mean, she she finds these jewels, and then just as he's about to sign, 
she everyone's to stop, 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 and that obviously pays for the, the you know thing to go away kind of thing. I mean, where did she get these jewels? I mean, has she found someone's back? I don't. I can't remember where she found them. I think they just washed up on the beach. Ah, right. Okay, so it wasn't just something like she went into someone's pocket. No, I think I'm sure they're on the floor. Um, and then, of course, she's trying to say something, isn't she, in, in Spanish? And no pen, no sign. Mm. Um, and then, we, of course, we see Mikey's father uh, rip up this document. I always love it in, in movies when you see someone rip a small piece of paper up, yet when they throw it in the air, there seems to be a thousand pieces of paper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it happens. Um, <laughs> in the midst of all this celebration, um, we see the sheriff, don't we? Uh, and he says this line, Holy Mary, Mother of God. And we see everyone turn around and we see this scene of one-eyed Willie ship behind the rocks emerging from this cave. Amazing scene, amazing scene. And the music is, I mean, I must have said this five, six times alone, but the music in this scene almost gives you goosebumps. It's done so well. Um, and we have this news reporter, doesn't he? He almost gives a bit of a commentary. I think he says like, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're at Cauldron Point and what appears to be a pirate ship. <laughs> He's a bit like the guy off Gremlins, isn't he? The bathroom buddy, you know, Billy's dad. <laughs> um, and, and of course, the final shot is is one-eyed Willie's ship, uh, finally free, uh, just like the Goonies. Um, and we, we we obviously see them then do the big cheer with their sloth. It's a fantastic ending. Um, you know, sometimes we think, you know, how do you you have such a good film with a good story? Can you execute the the end scene that you know the money shot? They certainly did with Goonies, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Just um, just before that, when as the dad's about to actually sign the contract, uh, the it, he's he's about to sign it on the back of the guy, and it reminds me a bit of the Running Man when Arnie does the same thing and he stabs the pen in his back. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to send me a copy. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we see we see the we see the ship going off. Um, <laughs> we see the ship going off, and yeah, it's a it's a it's a magical moment, isn't it? Oh, it is indeed. Let's move on. Movie trivia. Okay, J-Dog, did you know that the Goonies' reaction to One-Eyed Willie's ship was genuine? Uh, director Richard Donner uh, denied the child actors access to the massive soundstage uh, where the full pirate ship was being built. So what we actually see in the film um, is the actual genuine reaction of the child actors, although I believe it was heavily edited to cut out most of the profanities. Yeah, I had heard something about that day where uh, they were only exposed to it for the first time. And you do see that genuine look of of, of shock on the faces. You, you, do you know what the ship reminded me of? A, a later Spielberg-made film, uh, Hook. You know, the, the huge uh, galleon-type ship. Very much so. Uh, another, that was, a, we can, I wish Hook was an 80s film because it would have been a good podcast episode that. I, I read the other day that it, was, it wasn't a critical success. I was quite surprised, but anyway, we're, we're sidetracking. Um, here's one for you. Did you know that June the 7th is Goonies Day in Astoria, Oregon? And the town still holds an annual celebration with screenings, balloons, banners and whatnot? No, I didn't know that, JD, but can you enlighten me as to why? Um, why June the 7th? Is that something mentioned uh, in the film? I have no idea. Maybe it's the, the release day of... Uh, oh. I'm not quite sure. Oh, it could be. But uh, who knows? But I think it's quite nice, isn't it? And who knows if we're ever in uh, Oregon or on June the 7th, we can pay a visit, eh? 
Uh, did you know that the sets were so impressive and popular that quite a few celebrities would drop by to take a peek? Mm-hmm. In fact, Harrison Ford was said to have climbed around in the caves with the young goonies. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. That's um I wonder where it was actually filmed then. At California, I imagine, probably some of these big stages. Yeah. Yeah. But then um, you know, Indiana Jones, that was made here, wasn't it? For example. But oh, yeah, it's okay. Oh, um Elstree. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Uh Last couple for me. Did you know that there were no buyers for One-Eyed Willie's ship uh, post-filming? It was eventually dismantled and scrapped. Oh, oh my God. I know. I know. That's hard to fathom. That's... I know there's no... I know when we watch these films and, you know, we get sentimental and in in terms of movie companies, there's no room for sentimentality there. They have to think about the bottom line and stuff, don't they? But doesn't it just feel like a bit of a like a, a criminal waste almost to, to get rid of something that's so... I mean, it is iconic now, but obviously they don't think like that at the time, do they? just, you know, move on, and, which is why I guess everything to do with Star Wars, like, you know, like, I don't know, like a, a, a button off a control console that had been on the screen would be worth, like, millions, you know, because it's just that, that attachment, isn't it? People just, once it's out and once a couple of years have passed, especially, it just... They, they develop like a mythology of their own, don't they? So, yeah. What a shame. Yeah, we, we, we've been doing this podcast now for a couple of years, haven't we? We're, we're about 30 episodes in. I don't think I've ever seen you react like that to a bit of trivia. That's hit you hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think as well, you know, you've, we've been doing this for a couple of years. Can you think of a film that's been released and then within the time that we've been doing this has become iconic? Because it seems to me like a lot of 80s films were like that. They were released and then they were instantly iconic. In this film, someone made the reference to, and I know it was the same movie makers and that, but still, within a year of the Gremlins being out, someone had made a reference in this film to the Gremlins. It's that instant iconic status that things got back then. And you, you don't get that now. You know, everything no. just, just throw away, well, gone. Here today, well, gone tomorrow. Again. It is, and it's kind of the reason why me and you do this podcast, because these films were iconic and are iconic still. Um, there's a magic about that that 10-year period, which can be well explained, but it, it's hard to fathom why it was just so fleeting, just those years. It, something happened, didn't it, in society where you know everything went into the melting pot and we just got this amazing bunch of films. I mean, yeah. we've only touched the surface with our podcast. Uh, last bit of trivia from me. Um this will be an interesting one for you. Did you know that there was a small cameo from none other than R2-D2? Uh, if you look closely, you'll catch him on the deck of the pirate ship. Now, it is hard. I had to kind of Google this one. He's covered in like a cargo net or something and a bit of dust. You could mistake you could mistake him for the bin, basically. Oh, okay. Interesting. I'll have to go back and look at that one. Okay, JD, I've mentioned this before, but did you know, you know now, Steven Spielberg directed a few scenes in the films. One in particular was the, you know, the pipes, uh, the underground pipes on the wall and the banging them and the pulling out, the taps are being pulled out of the walls in the showers, for example. That was, that was, that was directed by Spielberg. Ah, uh, interesting, interesting. So, I wonder if you can tell that in hindsight, did it have any particular Spielberg tropes? Well, 
well, while we're on the subject, JD, I was because I was mulling this over the other day. What would you say are Spielberg tropes? Um, what I've always found. Just to put you on the Spielberg, spot. Yeah, you put me on the spot. Um, you can edit this out if it doesn't go well. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Spielberg is very much. Uh, I always think of light and sound, um, and he, he likes to make use of even even with his props. So if you think of Close Encounters and and, and ET. There was always like a, a bit of a, a toy, like a robot, or, you know, something moving with like flashing lights. So it, not so much the camera work, it was more the mise-en-scene, what he included in, in his scenes. Yeah, I I'm agree. Not quite it's, sure hard, it's hard to pin down exactly, isn't it? But you just know what does it feel. I mean, it's artwork, isn't it? So you, maybe that's why you can't, be able, you know, explain it in a certain way. But the... There is something about it. There's a feel. You just know when it is. And you can feel that running. That's a common thread running through everything he's done, no matter what genre he's done. You just know, don't you, when it's Spielberg? I mean, if you look at that period of um, late 1970s to, you know, the, the, the late 80s, and you think about the films that he was involved with, um, from you know, Jaws, Indiana Jones, uh, Gremlins, uh, Goonies, I mean... Close Encounters, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Has there ever been a more impressive um, bunch of films in such a small period of time associated with one man? I certainly can't think of any. Other than maybe Hitchcock? No, probably not. Few and far between. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, JD, did you know that it took five hours to transform... John Matuzak every day. Now, anyone listening might think, who the bloody hell is John Matuzak? Well, of course, he was the actor. Or rather, he was the football player turned actor who um, played the part of Sloth. I think he died not too long after um, after this film, of a half yeah. failure or something like that. I mean, he was a big guy, but... Yeah, I had heard he passed away, unfortunately. And uh, I mean, we, we hear this, don't we, about these people that go through these uh, transformations and sit in the makeup chair for hours on end. And it's an incredible thing to do, to just sit and be, be still. Um, you know, it's, and it's a testament to them. And more so for the, this this guy, what did you say his name was? Uh, John Matusak. I mean, John, I don't know how many acting credits he had to his name, but for him to come into this film and, and do the performance that he did, um, it, it couldn't have been easy to play a character like Sloth, but played so well and so believable. I mean, props to him. He, he was really good. Yeah, I mean, he... he um, so I've just, just very quickly looked it up. He died of a prescription drug overdose, unfortunately. Um, he had a heart condition as well, which which which, uh, which added to the... Didn't help with death. But yeah, he was only 38. Blimey. Mm. Okay, and on that dour note then, JD, um, mm. did you know that I uh, did you know that data makes a reference to a scene that isn't actually in the movie? It was edited out. Yes, I do. I, I have been aware of this for quite a while. Uh, in fact, just out of curiosity, I have YouTubed the scene, which you can watch in all its well, I was going to say glory, but believe me, you will be glad that it's been removed from the final film. 
So um, when when data is explaining, I think it's he's explaining to the news reporter you mentioned earlier. He says that the octopus was very scary, but what octopus? What octopus? You're probably thinking of you've seen the film. Uh, so as you say, JD, there is a, a scene involving an octopus. It's it it it's bizarre and nonsensical in that. They an octopus. Okay, let me just set the scene because you you've got to you've got to see it to believe it. But an octopus attacks them. Data pulls out a a Walkman, and like an underwater Walkman, which plays music underwater. So not even with the headphones. So we get to hear this like rad eighty song, and he puts it in the mouth of the octopus, which then and then closes the mouth over the octopus and then the octopus goes away it's yeah the the octopus's beak it's like a beak isn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, now I'd, i'm not too familiar with the anatomy of an octopus but i don't think it's got a beak no no me uh, it, yeah i mean it, i do actually recall as a kid uh always thinking about why data said that I'm not mulling over it too much that uh, you know didn't spoil the film in any way but it was just always something i think you just assumed that he was just trying to big up the adventure to the news reporters. That was the only thing you could surmise. But of course, we found out in, in, in later years that there was deleted scenes. Um, it's it's not great, and, and it is good that it was left out. Uh, just it, it wasn't required, was it? No, not at all. Hey, it's movie feedback time. Moving on, let's get some listener feedback. As always, thank you to everyone that uh, sent in their tweets and comments about The Goonies. There's a lot of love out there for this film. And we'll start off with one from Passi Vitale at Passi Vitale, who said um, in response to our question of, you know, do you love The Goonies? Uh, Yes, big yes. Uh, Great movie and 10 out of 10 for me and adventure, what they really do anymore. Uh, What is a shame, but this movie is always a pleasure to watch again. It's so true. I mean, it's we can say this about many films, but I don't think there is many that could rival the Goonies for uh, rewatch value. It just doesn't lose anything. Um, I'm not quite sure what what that is entirely. It, we 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 tried to kind of verbalize the magic, but you know, Patsy's spot on. Um, Joel Zaga at Joel Zaga BTTF, presumably Back to the Future, said one of the greats cemented in movie history. Great family fun adventure to watch over and over again. And that's, you know, that's the two back-to-back who talk about, you know, watching this over and over. Uh, Jimmy Rossoni at The Big Ragu 215 said, one of my favourites of all time, the music, the story, the characters. It's a perfect blend of everything. Classic. Uh, The Watchers podcast, at The Watchers podcast, said, like others have already said, such a classic film that even as an adult, you can go back and enjoy. Um, spot on. Our good friend Bong Ripper, Jack Tripper at Labodi, said, is there a more classic kids' adventure movie? No, no, there's not. Amazing cast featuring future Samwise Gamgee, Thanos and the Frog Brother, among others. Infinitely watchable and infinitely quotable. Two thumbs way up. Uh, and we're starting to get the flavour here, Jaff, that this is... One of the most beloved movies, isn't it, out of this treasure chest of the 80s. Uh, Gabriel at 1FT Fadeaway or 1 Foot Fadeaway 
said, I still want to be a Goonie and always wanted to meet them, especially Data. Uh, Paul Canazaro at Boston Hooligan said, so great that it should never be remade. An instant classic. Hashtag, hey, you guys. And finally, John Ross at John Ross 77 said, an absolute classic in my top five all-time list. Hashtag, hey, you guys. Um, J-Dog, anything you want to say? Uh, Passi Vitale, yes, it is indeed. Always a pleasure to watch. And uh, with your score of 10 out of 10, you may not be disappointed later. Um, Joel Zaga, yes, it is a great family fun adventure. You mentioned that you can watch it over and over again. I totally, totally agree. JD said the same as well. It's got that. The, whenever it's on, you can watch it and always enjoy it. Same as back, as it, it's in your name, mate. Back to the future. Right, the big ragu. Yes, it is a perfect blend of everything you could ever possibly want. Again, we were talking about um, Spielberg tropes. A mix of everything is definitely one of them. The Watchers podcast, even as an adult, you can enjoy it again and again. I totally agree. You can watch that with anyone of any age and enjoy it. Our old friend, Bong Ripper. Is there a more classic adventure? The answer, no, probably not. Uh, you mentioned Thanos. I'm not too familiar with the Marvel films. I'd love to know who Thanos is. Is it Josh Brolin? Thanos is, is basically the big bad of, of the Marvel universe. He was the, the big villain. And no, it was no, Josh I, Brolin. I know that I, I, I'm, I'm not that ignorant, but who, <laughs> who in the, who it in? Was, it was Josh Brolin. All right. Okay. Yeah. So we, again, so he's had a, a career resurgence, hasn't he? Since, um, what was that film he was in? The, the, the Western one. Um, was Matt Damon in it? Um, oh no, I'm thinking of the wrong one. Anyway, past ten years or so, he's had a good resurgence. Gabrielle, I agree. When I was a kid, I loved Data. I loved his inventions. I loved his gadgets. I even tried to remake one of his little gadgets out of like an air freshener or something like that. I'm sure <laughs> years ago. Paul Canazaro never should be remade. You say. Is that a hint that you've heard on the grapevine somewhere that they're trying to? I hope not. That would be a disaster. And John Ross in the top five of all time. Very hard to disagree with that. Thank you, everyone. Oh, great stuff. Uh, Jeff Dog, it's come to that part of the show when we're going to test your knowledge of the Goonies with a little bit of Q&A. Yo, it's the movie quiz. Question one. Uh, the scene when the Goonies start banging on the pipes, as uh, mentioned by yourself just a moment ago, uh, we also see Troy heading into a toilet cubicle to read a magazine. What was the name of the magazine? Sports Illustrated. Yeah, that's not a bad guess. It was Guns and Ammo. Oh, okay. Uh, your old friend, question two, Chester Copperpot. Uh, <laughs> on, on his body they find a baseball card with what player on the front? Lou Gehrig. Ah, spot on. Well done. And finally questioned, I assume it was Lou Gehrig to kind of hint about the, how long he's been down there. That, that was my understanding. Yeah, 1920s, uh, also because, 1930s? I think it was 30s. Isn't it amazing uh, how uh, Lou Gehrig died of Lou Gehrig's disease? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never understood how that happened. You know, was that just a mad coincidence? Or? I think it was a mad coincidence. <laughs> uh, question three. What flavour of ice cream 
does Sloth mention to Chunk whilst he's on the phone to the sheriff? Oh, God. Um, oh, I can only think of Babe Ruth. Um, uh, Sloth. Uh, I'd have to push you for a response here. Uh, chocolate. No. No, I'm afraid not. The answer was, of course, Rocky Road. Oh, how did that? Oh, Christ. Rocky Road, of course. Now, it's usually three questions each, but I, I thought I would throw in this last little curveball question for you. So question four, bonus question. What was the name of One-Eyed Willie's ship? Uh, um, the incinerator. I can, clue. The... I can give you a clue. Go on. Uh, if I said to you, the towering inferno. Uh, there there you go. Go. Two out of four. Two out of four. Hey, not bad. 50%. Okay, JD. When Chunk, or rather, when we very, very first see Chunk. When he's in the arcade or restaurant or whatever it is, he he puts his hands up against the window. Can you identify what he's got in his hands? I'm pretty sure it's a burger and a strawberry milkshake. Okay, I'll I'll give you that. I think it's a pizza slice to be technical. Oh, it's like red okay, and well. yeah, <laughs> I'll give you that though. And yeah, it's a it's a milkshake in a Pepsi. Um, a Pepsi cup, and uh, do you notice the Pepsi logo appeared many times in this film? I yeah, mean, I think when they get to the restaurant, don't they? There's like a, a cooler box with it. Yeah. yeah, I did notice that. Or like a dilapidated pe- Pepsi cooler, and, it, and there's a couple of others as well. Okay, I don't want the point for that. I'm not. Uh, okay, to I'm angry with myself now. Uh, when the Goonies ride again, would have been introduced to the characters when they ride past Mr. Walsh. Outside the museum, what's he doing? Is he hanging a banner up outside the uh, museum? Oh, do I give you that? He's he's either raising or lowering the American flag. Ah, you bastard! <laughs> <laughs> okay, you mentioned before that uh, in the attic or the loft, uh, chunk knocks over a, um, a a frame. And it's got a newspaper clipping in it. Can you name what the article is, or or even what it's related to? That's in the in the frame. Uh, you mean Chester Copperpot? It's it's in that frame, but there's a newspaper, and it's got a headline that you see very clearly. Uh, but is it in relation to Chester Copperpot? No, no, no. Oh, interesting. Uh, then I haven't got a foggy. It's FDR promotes New Deal. Ah, which again, like the one. like the Lou Gehrig thing, implies nineteen thirties. I think you're right. Yeah. Okay, I think that's three, um, and you did four. So I do have a bonus question lined up. If you'd uh, like to go for it, why not? I, I can salvage some pride. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you're gonna like this one because it's really hard. <laughs> okay, when um, when the when the boys tie up. Brand, brand, to the chair with his uh, stretchy <laughs> chest expander thing. There is a calendar behind him on the wall, and it's got an eighties band on it. Can you name the band? 
Blimey. Um absolutely not, so I'm just gonna take a wild stab. I, I will give you I'll give you I'll give you a clue. Back to the future three. ZZ Top? <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Yes, come on. <laughs> Favorite movie scene. For me, J Dog as a kid, there was always something magical about the final scene. Uh, and it's one of these films where you could have probably picked 10 because the film's just got so many high points. But I think I'm going to go with the final scene when the sheriff spots the pirate ship. Um, the use of the music in, in the film is second to none, but in this last scene, it's so powerful um, because you get that feeling, don't you, of great lore and mystery, this relic of the past uh, as emerging. And, and it goes back to what I said earlier about it being a little bit of a metaphor for the film and, and the Goonies are, are finally free. Uh, even just the, the, the sub-characters, you know, the, the sheriff and the news reporter who had, had that little bit of narration and, and almost prop that scene up even to a higher level. It's flawless. And I, I'd probably go for that. Uh, great scene, great explanation. I'm going to go for something different. I love everything that happens, all of the action scenes that happen on the boat at the end because I, I just think you've got that sense of um, the film has been quite, and I always remember thinking about this when I was young as well. The film is quite tight. Um, oh God, how do I even explain it? For for much of the film, we've been in a very enclosed space, down a, a, an alley, down a, a, a hole in the wall, onto the next room, the next chamber, and so on and so forth. When they go down that slide and out into the, the lagoon, as it were, the film or the scenes open up a little bit. So you see a little bit more of, a, of wider shots and whatnot, um, and I and I I just I always loved the the fighting that happens with, you know, the bit where we mentioned with Sloth and his family, and also everything that leads up to getting the gold from One Eyed Willie. Like the it is the the climax, isn't it? The the, the emotional climax. The, the emotional climax comes at the very very end when they find the money and whatnot. But you know the climax in terms of the the scenes with the bad guys and everything that that comes there and then. So I always loved that that scene. Uh, it's a great choice, and and I agree with you. I mean, they went for all the tropes, you know, walking the plank, the treasure, the swords, uh, the knife in the mouth, mm -hmm. but it, it was executed so well. I, I agree with you. Great, great shout. Movie legacy. I think this is an interesting one, J Dog, because I suppose the question to ask is, how have we got to 2022 without a sequel? Um, and I say that not in the sense that I'm asking for one. I say that only in the sense that this is such a beloved movie and anything that's beloved usually is associated with money um, and an opportunity to kind of cash in. Um, but here we are, um, years and years later, what are we, 36 years, 37 years later? This is a beloved 80s classic. Um, we, we had someone reference in the, in the listener feedback top five and I think if you ask the average 80s movie lover The Goonies probably features quite heavily in a lot of people's top five it's immensely quotable um, it spawned video games notably in and around the that era, the Commodore 64 the Atari um, it obviously had the lunchboxes and the board games but no sequel um, I did read however that Disney Plus is rumoured to be making a series called Our Time. Now, I've read in, up about this, and I must say I'm not liking what I hear. 
uh, but basically it's a teacher and students trying to reenact this film. Um, and maybe I haven't read that right, but it, it didn't leave any positive vibes with me when I read it. But I don't know where that leaves us. Um, and of course, unfortunately, we've only recently just lost uh, Richard Donner. And, you know, rest in peace. He's, he's not no longer with us. Um, so what what do we say about the Goonies? I mean, yes, it, it's still held in high regard. Is there any future? Could there be a franchise? Uh, give us a bit of a rundown of this movie legacy. Well, a couple of years ago, the, the film was chosen to go into a national database in, in the States of uh, movies that have a particular uh, cultural impact. And I think the idea is it's more symbolic than anything. Um, they they take the, the film, the actual film stock itself, and store it in a vault somewhere so that it never loses its, uh, it never degrades, kind of thing. Um, and I guess that's something for the future, um, you know, so that in f- five hundred years time, you know, people will be able to look back on it and look back at it and 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 appreciate it and get an understanding of 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 things. Um, from the time that it was made uh, and about how people lived lived their lives back then. Um, it's an amazing idea, you know, obviously because the limitations of, say, you know, Shakespeare meant that we could, they couldn't do things like that back back 500 years ago, but 400 years ago and, and such. It's, an, it's nice to know that in, in 400 years' time from now, people could still be watching The Goonies. They might think, what, what on earth is this? But you know, it's something, isn't it, to um, as a, as a legacy to pass on, as it were. The idea of a sequel to me, you know, there's no there's no need. It would be profitable. It would make money. I'm, you know, you know it would. But would it be any? Would it be any good? Would it be any? Would it be worth anything? Would it be? Would it add anything? The story's being told. Everything about. Our old friend Oswald Copperpot. <laughs> we know all about Chester Copperpot, don't we? That story's being told. It was a very simple adventure. That's all. Just leave it as it as it was. It doesn't need anything else. No, I, I'd agree with you on that one, J Dog. Um, now here we are at the end of the episode. We come to the all important mark out of ten, and as always, J Dog, that honor is yours. I think I know what you're going to go for, but. Fire away, sir. Uh, this is a straight up, um, without even having to give it a second thought or any debate. Uh, it's a, it's a one one hundred percent ten out of ten from me. Yeah, no, I think most people will share that sentiment. I certainly do. Um, in many ways, the perfect eighties movie is the perfect adventure movie, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. I don't know if there's anything else that could top it. I mean, we've recently looked at our Big Trouble in Little China. That's a similar sort of adventure. It's definitely up there. Um, but, you know, this is this surpasses everything in that regard. There's nothing. I don't think anything comes close. Oh, well said. Any final words, J-Dog? Uh, just to say, once again, thank you to everyone who's uh, who's been supporting the podcast, everyone who's been listening in whether you're doing uh you know jobs around the house and listening on the podcast or uh you know you like to you've had a, a busy day at work and you're just chilling and you throw us on for a listen or 
or whether you're in the States and you just want to listen to what these funny British people sound like, or, you know, if you're in Britain and you just think who are these two fellas, they haven't got a clue what they're talking about, but, you know, we just, we just like doing it. And, uh, you know, I've had, a, I've had a blast sitting here for the past couple of hours, just, just chatting with you about it. And, you know, this is, this is exactly what, what we do, isn't it? We talk about films. We love talking about films. We could talk, we could talk on for longer if we wanted to, but we know we know the listeners will get bored. But thank you for your patience and listening <laughs> for long enough as is. Yeah, well said. Uh, maybe take issue with the, the funny Brits, funny looking perhaps, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, honestly. Um, no, I agree. Thank, thanks for that, Jay Dog, And as always, thank you to everyone that, that uh, listened to the episode and, and continues to support us. Um, if you do, uh, enjoy the episodes you can get us on twitter we are at circuits of time and of course we're on instagram circuits of time 80 uh, but we hope you enjoyed this episode uh, join us again for another episode of the circuits of time see you next time dirt bags